And we are live with a, another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Professor Damien Hughes. He's an international speaker, an author, a very accomplished podcaster with a hugely uh, successful run of episodes of High Performance, uh, the podcast I'm sure we'll get into. Um, he is a, is a, well, is a, is a speaker and coach with uh, an organization that I've also done some work with, and that's how I first got to know Damien. We share a client, uh, a medical device um, provider uh, run by a fantastic guy, uh, and you'll know who you are if you're listening, uh, who, uh, yeah, uh, is a huge fan of your work, so it was a great um, honor to, to hear you speak, uh, and you were yeah, funny, insightful, and just a ton of information packed into this really short talk, so I was... Really excited when you said yes, you'd come on the podcast. So big welcome. Oh, no, it's an honor. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the book I should say I've read, which is which is great, which uh, draws on the podcast, um, High Performance Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best, um, was was brilliant as well. Um, so I know the, the question you uh, like to kick off your podcast is, is is you know, what is your definition of high performers? What does what does high performance mean? Um, I thought we should start with that. So I'll flip the tables and ask you that. Yeah, what what? How do you define Damien uh, high performance? Well, that's a brilliant question, <laughs> and not only because we ask it. Uh, it's a bit, the reason we do ask that question just before we get into answering it is because I think the important thing is that everybody's definition is going to be different and. I think we start that because it often gives us a clue as to where the conversation is subsequently going to go. For some people, it might be around being the best parent, the best partner that they possibly can. For others, it might be something to do with winning in their chosen career or industry. Um, I think it's interesting that we've done nearly 220 of these interviews now with elite performers across sport, business and the arts. And we haven't had a single consistent definition. We, interestingly, given the topicality of the Rugby World Cup at the moment, when we interviewed Maro Itoji, the England rugby player, he was the first guy that made a distinction between um, high performance and world-class performance. So his point was high performance is always going to be subjective. World-class performance is an independent set of measures that, that you either reach or you don't. So... That's the reason we asked the question, but to come back and answer, um, uh, answer it. I, I struggled for a long time when we first started the podcast because before we did it, I think I would have said something around, um, it, so it would have been about measures, so targets, numbers that you hit, titles you win, that kind of thing. But it has changed massively over the course of the four years nearly that we've been recording it. And... When we wrote the book that you just were kind enough to mention there, the publisher said, well, what is your definition? And I saw, went through all my notes and I came across um, some notes that I made, not on the interview, but before we did the recording. Because sometimes those quiet moments, either before or after the recording, can offer you some real gold, gold dust. And it, it related to a conversation we had with Phil Neville, who at the time was the England Lionesses, head coach, and he'd obviously been a celebrated footballer at Manchester United and Everton and with England. 
but he'd opened a hotel with his brother and some of his other former teammates opposite Manchester United's ground. And during the pandemic, it was on the local news in Manchester that they'd opened the hotel up free of charge for NHS workers just to come and get some respite. And as I was having a cup of tea with Phil, I complimented on him. I said, oh, I, I heard what you did and I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, just congratulations. And he gave me just a really throwaway remark that subsequently I taught, jotted down and thought, that is my definition. He said, you know what, Damien? He said, sometimes in life, you've just got to do the best you can in the moment you're in with the resources you've got. And I said to him, sorry, just say that again, Phil. And he said, do the best you can with what you've got where you are. And I was like, that is probably the textbook definition for me because what it does is it taps into that subjectiveness that says the best that you can do is different than the best I can do because you're in a different moment of your life than what I am and you have different resources. You start from a different place and what we do. So the idea of comparing yourself or getting caught up in that culture of measuring yourself against what other people have got or what other people expect of you is always a path to disappointment because you could only do it by doing an honest appraisal of where you are, what you've got, and the moment that you're in. So I think at any time, like before we started this podcast today, my, my question to you was how can I do the best? Like, what, like what's your expectations? And then I can either do my best to meet them or I can sort of manage your expectations and say, this is what I'm capable of. But yep. I think that gives us all some real power I think it allows us to understand control that high performance isn't some bullshit measures of comparing yourself to others. It's, it will always be a subjective and personal answer. Right. Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate that. Well, and it's entirely in line with your, your sort of demeanor and, uh, and approach to this topic is it, it's grounded, right? And, and I think Thank you. what you're doing with this topic is because a lot of people might feel a bit intimidated by this idea of high oh well, you know yeah. well i'm not elite at anything you know how could i even even think about opening a book on high performance but actually yeah. the way you approach it from this you're know, doing the best you can with what you've got in that moment uh and, and actually i had my own sort of preconceived ideas when i got into this book sort of demolished because yes you speak to a lot of very high level you know athletes and accomplished people but this the central message is is that right it's like how do you have yourself in the best place possible to do the best with what you've got in that moment yeah i mean and, and it's a really valid point that you make and we often have this debate ourselves whether we've sort of boxed ourselves in a corner with the title calling a podcaster book high performance people come to it with very loaded imagery or preconceptions that they think it's about being number one be, you know, striving for the best or being that kind of alpha behavior of I've got to be the dominant character in a room. And the reality is that I think that that is part of it for some people, don't get me wrong, but it's only a small, small slice of the pie. It's just a small glimpse of the real picture for the vast majority of people. And like you say, we've, we've interviewed so many elite performers and the title of your podcast captures very much the essence of what we hear so often it's about the humanness it's about the fallibilities it's about the frailties that we all have and learning how to overcome them and that therefore applies to anybody that is human 
I had a question um, because you know there's so many ways into this, and there's there's so much yeah. insight, and there you know there's so many stories in this book, and obviously and, and from the broader cost podcast. But for you personally, I'd love to drill down, Damien, into um, a little bit of your history into getting into this topic. Yeah. And then and then for you in your life as a professor, as a as a speaker, uh, a podcaster, yeah, an author, what really re- rises up for you in terms of the big takeaways and lessons you've learned from these conversations that you've been able to apply yeah, in your own life and profession? Yeah, sure. So I, I think origin stories are really important because often we, we, we find out so much about the characteristics or the conditioning that we've been subjected to that shapes us into the people that we are. There's, I, I often think about, there's a really nice um, theory from, um, he's, a, but he's, he's a very early uh, adopter of the social psychology movement, a guy called Kurt Lewin. So in the 1930s, he had uh, this really lovely formula that he said, your, your behavior is a result of both your personality and the environment that you're in. So some of it, is like your personality traits like that will be some of it is genetics or it's adopted from your parents and the people around you. But then some of it, it a large part of it is around the environment that you grow up in, the conditioning. And it's, so how much of it is, uh, is dependent on environment, how much is personality? The answer is nobody knows, but we have to take both of them into account. So I often love hearing people's origin stories because it gives you a clue as to uh, as to the person that sits in front of you, they're often a result of all those factors. So for mine, um, I grew up in uh, a boxing gym in uh, inner city Manchester. So for a lot of people, when you say that, it often conjures up images of sort of dusty old uh, boxing gyms, like in the Rocky movies and things like that, uh, in sort of deprived areas. And I suppose my my childhood home sort of conforms to that to a degree that the area that I grew up in in North Manchester um, over the last 20 years has been categorized as being one of Europe's third poorest districts. And the reason I mention that is because that often gives you a clue as to a lot of the social deprivation and the dysfunction that follows like high levels of crime, um, gang cultures, um, that, and, and all those other subsequent fallouts. But in many ways, I, di- I, di- I wasn't aware of that when I grew up because my dad was a community leader that ran the boxing club and he'd ran it long before I was even born. So if you were to ask me my early childhood's memories, it's about being in a gym, sort of messing about in the ring, sort of playing with medicine balls, putting the gloves on and fighting with my brothers. So I was around that environment for a long time, but what I subsequently recognized, there's a lovely, theory, a lovely quote I heard when I went down the route into academia that said, when we, do re- we don't do research, we often do research, where we try to make sense of our yeah. own lives. And yeah. I think what, what I'm telling you now is hindsight that I'm looking back on it and trying to make sense of it. But what I was being subjected to was two things that have subsequently shaped what I do in my career. One was that I was around high performance from as far back as I can remember. So my earliest memories also involve guys that were going off to box for England in the Olympic Games. 
So you yeah, see him very successful with your dad, right? As, as yeah, yeah, he was coach. a very successful coach. So I was seeing guys go off to Olympic Games and having to prepare for that. Then I was seeing guys become professional as, a, as boxers. So therefore, everything that that subsequently entailed, then these same guys going on to become British, Commonwealth, European, and some of them eventually became world champions. So what I was seeing there was the work in the shadows. And what I mean by that is that most people see the bright lights, the outcome of a victory. But I was seeing the process that would last many years, the work that nobody had seen, the, the, long, the late nights, the early mornings, the road work when nobody's going with you, that, you know, the, the hard yards of being hurt in the gym and having to learn lessons from it. So that's always been the area that interests me in my career, the work in the shadows. Not the bright light stuff, not the stuff where everybody's paying attention. It's the stuff where nobody's paying attention that really intrigues me. But the second thing that shaped it was that I, I gave you an idea of the kind of social environment that, that the gym was based in. But what I eventually came to realize was just the sheer power of, uh, of a culture. Because even though it was surrounded by some real areas of deprivation, the gym itself was almost like an oasis. So people that came in there, it was a place where they were respected, they were valued, they were treated with dignity, regardless of, a lot of people never even laced on a pair of boxing gloves or steps into the ring, but they might come in there. Some, some of the old people in the area might come in for a cup of tea and just watch people working out, but they were treated the same as like these world champions, or you might get some people that would just come in and wouldn't just keep fit, skip a rope or something like that. They were treated the same as guys that were, that were going after elite performance in their own chosen sport. And, but there was a series of things that underpinned it. So the, I, I often talk on the podcast around non-negotiable behaviors. And what I mean by that is just the standards that you don't compromise on because you understand that they're key to your culture. So the one that I often mention is that in the boxing gym, you weren't allowed to use bad language. So you could F and blind with the best of them out on the street, but the moment you cross that threshold, you had to keep a civil tongue in your head. And it wasn't some moral compass that was, that was being applied there. It was the simple understanding that it was about discipline. So if you didn't have the discipline to keep your mouth shut and had to fill the silence by an F word or cursing yeah. or something like that, that was a sign of the you lacked an element of self-discipline to be able to control your mouth. And if you lack self-discipline to do that, where else would self-discipline manifest itself in potentially costly circumstances? Or it might be something about you weren't allowed to treat anyone with disrespect. You had to treat everybody yeah. with courtesy and respect. You couldn't be rude. There was no kind of bullying. So if you in the book that um, you mentioned and appreciate you doing that, I tell the story of when, when I was 13 and sort of forgot the culture that I'd been brought up in or chose to try and test it. So I was in the boxing ring and I was sparring with um, a guy that I, I was better at that and I was overmatched with him, which means that I was stronger and faster and more skilled than him. Now in a situation like that, in the culture that my dad had reared, that was incumbent on me to slow down my pace and to help the guy I was sparring with. So I should have gone at his pace and showed him what to do and helped to coach him. 
but I was a 13-year-old idiot and didn't. So I chose to sort of abuse that power dynamic. So I threw my weight around a little bit. I threw punches that were unfair and I basically took advantage of the fact that I was better than him. And I was feeling like I was the cock of the walk. And as we'd finished the, the sparring session, I was getting out of the ring and my dad stopped me. And he said, where are you going? And I said, I've finished my workout. He said, that wasn't workout, stay here. And he made me stay in the ring and then he put in a young professional boxer with me. And for the next 15 minutes, this guy just taught me one of the most profound lessons of my life that he didn't physically hurt me, but he emotionally took me to the cleaners. So he basically kept popping my head back, slipping every punch that I had and just showing me what I'd done to the other guy at moments earlier. And what even hurt even more was literally everybody in the gym stopped what they were doing to come and watch me get served this last slice of humble pie. And when I was sort of climbing out of the ring at the end of this humiliation, I, like, I couldn't speak because I thought if I do, I'm going to cry. And my dad right. came over and said, how do you feel? And I said, and I couldn't speak to him. And he just quietly took me to one side and he said, how you feel now is exactly what you did to that young lad just before. And he said, I'm telling you now, don't ever, ever bully anybody again. Don't be a dick. Don't behave in a way that you that abuses that dynamic. Now, I'm telling that story 30 odd years later, and it's still, even whenever I recount it, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because it was a, mm. just a really powerful affirmation of this is the way we do things around here. This is the culture that you brought up in. This is the standards of behavior that we're not prepared to compromise on, even though I was, it was my own dad choosing to see me humiliated in front of a peer group, he wasn't prepared to compromise on it because if he'd have done that for me, suddenly you'd have chaos, you'd have everybody going, well, if he yeah. can do it, why can't I do it? So it's just a really good example of all the things that I've subsequently shaped my career. So <laughs> I, I, I say a career, I don't really feel like, I, like that sounds a formal title for what I feel I've got. I, I, I very loosely use that term, but I think if you could sum it up, it's basically about helping leaders to create cultures where high performance can flourish. And that's what's yeah. led me down the academic route, the professional route, the books and uh, the podcast, to me, all come back to the very same uh, driver, that sense of purpose of helping people to create cultures where everyone can flourish and thrive. Yeah, and the, the, this this theme of yeah, you mentioned on the podcast in the book as well of non-negotiable behaviors. Yeah, yeah, is is emphasized throughout the book. And there was a stat which I found fascinating, where uh, there was some researchers had looked over six companies, and they were trying to figure out what separated the top teams from the bottom. Teams. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And they looked at goals, and they found like eighty nine percent of the top teams set goals, but then so do eighty six percent of the bottom of the teams, bottom teams. Right. So yeah. it's not goals. But it turned out that 89% of the top third, top third teams set behavioral goals, right? Yeah. So, yeah, talk a little bit more about that. I, I was fascinated by, by that. Yeah, so it's fascinating research. I mean, that research dates back to the 1980s, and you have to forgive me, I can't remember the name of the authors of that paper at the moment, but yeah, it's a seminal paper that was done. And it's basically saying that, if, so everybody wants to be successful. But then you have to lay down the behaviors that depend on that success. So one of the simplest ways that, that 
in that paper it advocates. I, I use a slightly different title for it. I talk about success leaves clues. So the point I say is that when you're successful, there are clues that are left behind and that it's, it's incumbent on you to go and identify the behaviors that give you the clues that, that are the clues to that success. So it might be things like in that paper, it talks about that you don't just say, uh, we'll check in with clients that you'll talk about these are, we will meet, we will phone our clients three times a week. It, it, so that's the behavior that you're not just saying, I'm going to check in with you. I'm telling you what my behavior will be like three times a week. You will receive a phone call from me just to make sure that you're happy with the product. So that by in turn leads to trust and that leads to greater strength of relationships in times of crisis. So that's where the idea of having some really clear behaviors come from, because what you see is lots of organizations and lots of teams talk in terms of values they talk about our company values our team values our my personal values and they're great as a starting point but they're not great if they're the end point of it because mm. a value is often at such a high abstract level that it's impossible to disagree with them Do you know what i mean yeah. if i was to say to you i've got a value of integrity well, you're not going to sit there and go, well, actually, I really appreciate people that have a lack of integrity. You go, oh, integrity sounds great. Or yeah. I believe in being honest. Well, who's that? who wants to work with someone that's dishonest? Do you see what I mean? So, yeah. so those values are at the start. It should be your way into the conversation, but they shouldn't be the place where the conversation rests. We then need to say, so what does honesty look like? How do I behave when I'm being honest? And we sort of break it down into really specific behaviors. And what I've seen in so many elite high-performing cultures, these behaviors are there. They maybe don't call them non-negotiables, but they're clearly and keenly understood by everybody that's in that organization. So what that leads to as a consequence, if we start to unpick it, is first of all, there's transparency. Because everyone goes, I know, what, I know what's expected of me. I know the demands are going to be placed on me because these have been identified and then passed on from people that have already been successful within this culture. So you get transparency first, but then the second thing that it drives is the example that I used about my dad with me in the boxing ring is consistency. Mm. When, you've, when, you've, when you've sort of uh, nailed those behaviors publicly to the mast, you almost have to behave in a consistent manner with them because you know that everybody else is aware of what you stand for and are therefore going to be judging you from it. So think of it in any walk of life. Think of it, say, like in politics. What, what kills our political leaders? Like take the pandemic, for example, right? That what you're hearing come out is that in the cabinet meeting, it's alleged that Boris Johnson is supposed to have said, let the bodies pile high when he was talking about care homes, right? Now, whether that's true or not, that's the story that gets alleged to him. And while it sounds horrific, you didn't hear him say it, and I didn't either. So, what, so that didn't kill Boris Johnson's prime minister tenure. What killed him? The pictures of him having a party. Because you could also remember that he told you that you weren't allowed to have a party. So the lack yeah. of consistency makes us think he's a hypocrite. And that leads us to not trust him, 
which therefore leads to that very visceral reaction of let's get this guy out of office. Not, not the abhorrent alleged statement. It's the very visible sign of hypocrisy that kills us. So we understand that transparency and consistency are key within any culture. And what behavioral non-negotiable standards or goals, however you want to define them, do is they force you to commit. They force you to commit and say, this is what we're prepared to do and we're not going to compromise on them. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote in a book you've got from Phil Neville again, doing the right thing every single minute, every single day, right? Yeah. So, does it, I mean, Phil told us that, that he was talking about it in terms of like, the, like he, he was told by a nutritionist that getting up in the middle of the night and eating cereal would help his performance. So he set his alarm for three in the morning, would get up, eat cereal, then go back to bed. Now, to me or you, that might sound really extreme, but he's been given information that says that, and for him, his ambition is to be the best he can at any moment with the resources he's got. So he's now been given some resources, some knowledge that me or you don't have that says, if you do this, it helps you. So he's prepared to do the right thing every moment. So we can laugh at him or we could go, actually, that's a real like, admirable sign of somebody that's committed to going after high performance on their own terms. I, I, I actually prefer the quote from Olaf in Frozen, where he says <laughs> something similar, but he says, just do the next right thing. Yeah, so yeah. I sometimes say this to my children, that I'd say to them, just do the next right thing. That you don't have to do it with to have an outcome. You just know that in that moment, the next right thing is all you need to really fit, worry about. Yeah, and then I suppose having like, it, and it's and what I like about the book is you don't you don't try and sum up like what the best practice non negotiables are or like what the best ones are. You're just saying have some right, and every culture is it will will choose a different set perhaps, and for some it might be timekeeping, for some it might be you know how you dress, right? Whatever it might be, uh, just pick them. And like yeah. that in itself is what is the message. Yeah, there is no formula to this. And I, I do a genuine listening to this that if anyone's telling you, this is the formula, these are the, these are the keys to doing it, just treat it with a degree of skepticism. I'm sure there's yeah. value in it, but there is no formula. I can't tell you what the behaviors you need to do to be successful because I don't, I don't live in your world. I don't understand the demands and the pressures that you're under. I don't understand when you've been successful in the past, what worked for you then might not be mm. my definition of what works now. So mm. it's for everybody to define it on their own terms, not to have somebody come along and give you the answer, because I'm afraid that that just doesn't work. And, and, and it's a dangerous precedent because, because to want to tell somebody what to do, to be prescriptive, infers that you've got all the answers. And I think one of the things that both Jake and I do on the podcast is we're really clear. We're not telling you what to do. We're not preaching at you. There's no answers here. What we want to do is just give you some ideas that we gleaned in, in communion with our, with, with our, our guests that we're lucky to do. And from that, you might go, if that works for you, great. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Find something else that does. That has to, but it has to be you, right, holding the pen. It stops somebody else who can do it for you. Yeah, and there's an exercise in the book which I did and I enjoyed, which was like take your last 12 months, pick out your biggest successes, and then write down the characteristics you know, that 
that contributed to those successes. And that starts to give you a sense of, oh, okay, well, maybe this is a place to look for my, for my non-occasional behaviors. Well, that was on an individual level. Well, what you've done there is the exact exercise that Matthew McConaughey, the Oscar winning actor, told us. So, <laughs> in good but, company. Yeah, yeah, you're in great company because he, he, he told us when we were lucky enough to speak to him that he, he's kept a diary for the last 30, 35 years. And his point was, he said, he said, because when you hit bad times or difficult times or periods when things are not going right, and we will, because we all will, he said, the diaries are almost his blueprint to go back to when things were going well and work out what was I behaving like then that I'm not doing now. And it might be that I was working out a lot more then and I'm not doing that now. So I don't feel as better about myself. It might be that, you know, I wasn't making as many inquiries or putting myself up for as many auditions now that I was doing then. So he said, it's almost like you keep, that by capturing that exercise that you've done, you come up with a blueprint that allows you. So when things are going well, don't worry about it. Just just keep doing it. But when things go wrong or you trip up, go back to the blueprint and say, what am I not doing that I'm capable of that's part of my character that is a trait that I have that I can now adopt and apply again. And and keep the consistency. Yeah, that's yeah that's exactly. It. Yeah, that, that 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 makes sense. So, in terms of you, Damien, then like, and I know given what we've just said, right? You're not trying to offer a prescription, and and everybody's going to be different. But just 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 to offer some inspiration here, and just to illustrate it, what have you taken on personally as your non-negotiables as as part of this process? Yeah. So, um, I advocate only having three. Because okay. I think Ian, three is enough that you can remember and you can adopt easily. It's almost like you use them as decision gates. So if they pass through these decision gates, you need to be able to do it quickly. So three is enough for it. So the first one I have is um, it's a quote that my dad gave me when I, when I was a kid and I've, I've held true to it. He said, if your absence isn't noticed, that means your presence hasn't made a difference. So the point is, in every situation, wherever you go to, try and offer a positive contribution. Try and do something that 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 helps, or that just that people would notice that if you weren't there, they'd notice it. Whereas if you was out of the room and nobody'd even notice it, you haven't probably offered what you're capable of. So that that's the first one. Try and make a positive contribution wherever you go. The second one is try and have a laugh. I try and in, have an element of levity or humor in it. And the reason for that is that when I did the exercise that you were describing, I thought about saying, I, did, I remember many years ago sort of reflecting on what would my teachers have said about me at school. And I think what they would have said is I was a nice lad, but I was a bit of a pain in the ass. And I think some of it was because I got bored. I got bored easily. So I think... The lessons where I didn't get bored were the ones where I was having fun, where humor was used, where there was something that I could engage with. So I think in any situation, try and find the enjoyment in it. So if you're going to commit to do it, find something that you're going to enjoy in the process of it. It doesn't have to be out like laughing out loud, but it's something where you could say, you know what, I've enjoyed that. That's been a, that's been a really good use of my time. And then the third one, um, I've probably adopted this more in the last 10 years than I had done beforehand, which was 
uh, be kind. And I start by being kind isn't some tweet phrase to put on social media. To me, be kind is a really important reminder to myself. Because I think when, when you start by being kind to yourself, you then have the capacity to treat others with kindness and understanding yeah. and empathy. And I think I've been pretty rubbish at that for quite a long period of my life. And then I, I going back to what we were talking about earlier, I forget it. And it often comes with consequences. So it might be that I've got, you know, like that inner voice, sometimes it can be quite strident and quite critical. You know, if you make a mistake, yeah. you, you fucking idiot. What have you done that for? You stupid. Oh, I can't believe you've done that. And that's often the kind of inner narrative. And I think what it does is it just leaves you. I've had occasions where I've been, I've come close to burnout, you know, right. where, where I've made mistakes. I've sort of pushed myself too hard to try and correct those mistakes. And I think being a parent was the, was seminal for me in this because I remember Somebody asking me a question once and said, when my son was born, he's 14 now, but when he was born, somebody asked me in the year after it, how would you feel if somebody spoke to your son in the way that you speak to yourself? And it really choked me up because I thought I'd be, I'd be horrified. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd be ready to kill somebody if I thought they were speaking to my son like that. And yet, you know, kids copy us, don't they? Kids see what we do, not hit. You don't yeah. hear what we say, you copy what we do. And it sort of brought me up short that I thought I did that if I couldn't do it for myself, I needed to at least do it for my son and learn to role model that sort of inner kindness and be a lot better at sort of speaking to myself in that way. And what I've found is whenever I do that, I've got the capacity to treat others with a bit more kindness and understanding. So they're my three of try and make a positive difference, whatever you do. Try and enjoy it and have fun have a but, laugh. Well, well i was gonna say when i watched you speak you were you were you were, you were very funny oh well thank you but that's yeah. part of it because i'm doing that because yeah. it makes me laugh not yeah and so i'm glad they made you laugh but it was more because i'm trying to enjoy it and trying to role model that as a behavior but ultimately it's about being kind mm. um to myself they're the three that i try not to compromise on yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned about this, you know, being kind of for yourself and having this this view of yourself. There's some research which I really latched onto: fault versus responsibility. Albert uh, Bandura, this this idea of low self-efficacy versus high self-efficacy. Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so Bandura is probably regarded as like the founding father of the modern day psychology movement, and. His story is fascinating. He grew up in rural Canada and he works on the railroads and the highways while he was studying at university. And what he found is the ones that sort of were quick to blame others, like the manual workers that say, you know, the bosses are no good or the materials are shit or these people, our colleagues are a waste of time. They were the ones that tended to very much as soon as the, the, their productivity and performance were a lot lower than the ones that when who were faced with a situation, come on, let's pay the best of it. What can we do? How can we improve a situation? So Banjura subsequently went on to Stanford University where he became the head of psychology there. And this was very much often seen as one of the principles that he talks about high and low levels of self-efficacy determine how, how, how successful you tend to be. So if you're somebody that 
tends to point the finger of blame whenever anything goes wrong or blame the government, the weather, the news. That indicates a low level of self-efficacy. You don't believe you have much control over your life. You believe that life tends to happen to you. High self-efficacy just believes that you're the author of your life and that your levels of control are a lot higher. And what it tends to mean is that you tend to have happier, ha you tend to have better levels of health, mental health, well-being, professional success. The, the, in the nearly hundred years since Banjo published that sort of report, there's been thousands and thousands of papers that reaffirm it. So when we did the podcast, one, of, I think it's not insignificant that one of the most virally downloaded clips that we ever had was the interview with a, a Dutch footballer called Robin van Persie. And when we spoke, so it's been downloaded over a hundred million times, the particular <laughs> clip uh, that we had with Van Persie, where he recounted a conversation he'd had with his, uh, at the time, 13-year-old son. And he says, he's, as he was driving back from training, his 13-year-old son was sat in the car complaining about the referee, his teammates, the opposition, the quality of the pitch, the coaches were no good. He said that Van Persie said, I let him... I let him speak for a while and then I pulled the car into a lay-by and, and he recounted to us a conversation they had with him. He said to his son, he said, son, Art, he said, you tell me that you want to be a footballer. You tell me you want to be a professional footballer. He said, but let me tell you my experience of achieving the summit of success as a professional footballer, you're not going to achieve it. The way that you're talking is the language of a loser. He said, you're blaming him and her and this and that. He said, and I haven't heard of one single moment of self-reflection. I've not heard one single moment where you've looked at yourself and asked yourself what you could do better. And he said, no. And this is a key bit of the conversation because it gives him a really powerful sense of psychological safety. He says, listen, I'm your dad and I will always, always love you. So mm. it doesn't matter to me if you make it as a professional footballer or not. It really doesn't. I will still love you. That has no bearing on the love that I have for you, but it's your ambition and it's your dream. So what I'm suggesting is a simple method you can use is change the way you view the world. Start to change your language, start to look at yourself. And he said, because that is the language of a winner. So he uses that quite blunt Dutch talk of the language of a loser yeah. or language of a winner. And then he tells the story of how two days later he went to watch his son again and his whole behavior and mindset and demeanor was just like night and day. He said, I saw a guy that was encouraging others, running around, putting in plenty of effort. And he said, ah, he's got it. And that's almost the powerful bit that he talks about. What he was doing was getting him to understand the difference between high and low levels of self-efficacy. His first yeah. response to blaming others is low self-efficacy. You don't believe you've got much to do with it. You're just a victim of circumstances. And what he was doing was saying to him, I'd say, you're in charge of this. You're in charge of how you behave, how you think, and how you speak. And if you understand that, you give yourself a fighting chance of improving. And so that's very much one of the key areas that we mention in the book. But the, the credit for it has to go to the conversation with, um, with Banjura. And I think that what that does is it, what we try to do on the podcast is not because some people think that like I've, I've heard this as a criticism and they go, oh, I'm not listening to that shit. It's all, it's survivorship bias. It's successful people telling you why they're successful without any kind of 
acknowledgement of look or things like that. And now I can always tell somebody hasn't listened to it, partly because they're telling you they haven't, but also because that's exactly what it isn't. Because what we do do is do talk about look. We do talk about um, some of the factors outside of their control. But what we do try to do is take the controllable, repeatable, understandable bits like that, like the self-efficacy stuff, and help listeners to understand, actually, this is the bit you can take from me. You might not have the natural talent to be an elite soccer player, but you can take the mindset that he talks about and apply it to being a good mum or dad or brother or sister or son or daughter. It is the controllable bits that we're trying to do. It's not just listening to successful people humble brag their way through why they're successful yeah 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 no that that makes a lot of sense i mean, there was a there was something in the press recently where another study had been done i don't know if you caught it where they were suggesting that that luck played a huge role in in achievement massively uh, i mean the, 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 we haven't had a single guest not attribute luck to some factor of it whether it's a luck of where they were born the parents that that starts from before we're even born. The look, you know, you don't choose where you go to when you leave that maternity ward. You don't choose the postcode you're going to grow up in. You don't choose the school that you're going to go to. All those factors are determined almost outside of your control. And we haven't had a single guess yet, not have the humility to go, you know what, was really tough. <laughs> there was elements of this that were just down to luck. I can't claim any credit for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, back to this idea of um, high self-efficacy. So this, I'm not seeing myself as a victim. I'm taking full responsibility. I'm seeing yeah. my part in it. How does that marry with the idea of, of kindness? Because is there a risk there that we become sort of, you know, hard on ourselves, like always taking full ownership of everything, right? Like, yeah, how do, how do we balance that with kindness? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think I'd, that... Again, kindness is a choice. You can be the author of mm. a situation and, and, and accept that things don't always go wrong. So being able to determine, another of the factors is being able to determine what you're in control of and what you're not. So there's certain things where, that, like I say, where you grow up, the parents you have, the, the school you go to, things like that are outside of your control. So that we can... We need to learn to make better distinctions or, or when we can make better distinctions between it. Sometimes then when we make a mistake, we can then determine using the same distinctions. Well, what do I control? What elements right. of this can I get better at? But I think the kindness stuff says that it almost predicates your ability to reflect effectively. Because if you, if you saw a person that goes that I, that, I don't believe kindness is, is necessary. When you make mistakes, you're likely to be pretty strident on yourself. And as I explained from my own hard, hard won experience on this, your ability to reflect effectively and learn from it becomes a lot harder to do. Yeah. 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 So you've got en enough sort of love for yourself to be even ask yourself that question in a sense, right? What could I have done or what could I be doing differently, right? That in a sense is in a context of loving yourself enough to want to ask that question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just go, you're an idiot because you made a yeah. mistake. Well, that's yeah. not loving yourself effectively. And 
then that's a, then if you start from you're an idiot because you made a mistake, there's no room for learning. There's no room for growth there. Yeah, which which leads me on to to a thought I had. You know, as I was reflecting on the book, and I mentioned this before we came on air, was um, this ability to love oneself. So, um, in in my experience and my journey, I, I I came from a place where I found it very difficult to to love myself, and I. For, for quite a long period, almost had to drop my thoughts of performance, right? Because a performance assumes a performer who is performing to an audience, right? And, and to really dive deep into to therapy and working on myself at a level. And I put kind of all thoughts of, I sort of had to almost against my own ego, put all thoughts of performance to one side, right? I, I'm yeah. just going to forget the career for a while. I'm going to forget them. I'm, I'm just going to dive into doing all this deeper self-work. And it allowed me to become much more self-compassionate, much more loving of myself and so on, and to kind of pick up the performance conversation, but in a very different place and from a different context. So I was, I was intrigued as I reflected on my own experience. What, what do you see as the relationship between performance and, and healing or, or deeper self-work? Is there a conflict there, you know, what's your, what's your sense of that? It's a brilliant question. And thanks for being so candid about your own experiences on it. I think the answer is, so there's really interesting research on this that was done at John Hopkins university. So we're all familiar with sort of post-traumatic stress these days mm. and the PTSD is, is sort of people are familiar with the vernacular of it, but what isn't as well known as its almost lesser known cousin, which is post-traumatic growth. So people can experience trauma and sometimes use yeah. it as a springboard to go on right. and, yeah. and, and grow and develop from it. And I don't understand it in a level of detail that I'd be confident to, to claim any, not any real in-depth knowledge. But what I do know is that one of it is being able to make sense of it, being able to tell some kind of narrative of what's happened to you. And once you can make sense of it, your brain can let it go and allow you to take the things that you've learned from it to be able to, to go on and develop. So if I give you an example again, by drawing on the podcast, we've had a few, we've had a few interviewees that have really demonstrably demonstrated post-traumatic growth. Like one example came from the, an interview we did with a lady called Dame Stephanie Shirley. So. Most people have never heard of her, but she's a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor. So she came across at five years old to the UK on the kinder bus. So she lost both of her parents in the Holocaust. And she was adopted by a British family who sort of nurtured her, her talent for mathematics and for uh, those kind of skills. She ended up setting up her uh, business in her early 20s that was making the early prototypes for black boxes for aeroplanes mm. mm. where she was mainly employing women working at home from their, on their kitchen tables. Uh, now what's interesting is Dame Stephanie Shirley is often referred to as Steve because as a woman, she couldn't set up a bank account in the 1950s when she set up a business. So when she wrote the letter, she used to sign it as Steve Shirley because um, he assumed it was a man. She could open a bank account. So this is the kind of, sort of discrimination or culture and environment growing up in. I'll cut a very long story short, but in the uh, 1990s, uh, she sold the business she'd set up for 2.4 billion. That was <laughs> worth of it. And she spent most of the last 30 years uh, giving her wealth away. So 
She's the first person to, fo to voluntarily fall off the Sunday Times rates list because she's given virtually all of her wealth away because she, um, she had, in her late 30s, she had a young son who was born with severe autism. And she told us she had a breakdown um, in her early 40s where her son had to be put in a, uh, in, into care, which she described as like an asylum. And that was the springboard for her to go, you know what, I want to help autistic charities be able to provide some of like the necessary facilities. Now, she was a lady that has lived this incredibly rich life, but she said to us that when she was a young girl and she first came up to the UK, the neighbours of her adopted family said to her, you're a really lucky girl. And she said, and today she asks herself when she lies in bed every morning, the first question she asks herself is, how can I make my life one worth saving? Mm. How can I make my life one worth saving? And that is almost a springboard for her to have gone on and done all the amazing things that, she's, that, that I just described here. So yeah. there's some really powerful examples there of real post-traumatic growth where people have experienced these kind of horrors and used it by being able to create a narrative for themselves that enable them to understand it and shape their subsequent life and decisions around it. So I, I think for all of us, the healing process is necessary because otherwise it's it's like the ghost of our childhood continue to rattle around our body yeah that we we have impulses and responses to situations based on these old outdated stories that we're still telling ourselves and i think healing is effectively learning to tell ourselves more effective stories of how we're able to cope with sort of change and transition and so my answer is, if, is I think it's essential in what we've heard from our interviews, but I think it's essential enough that oh, like none of us could afford to discount it in our own growth. And your own example is a brilliant example of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's, what's interesting for me is that I kind of came full circle on it because I started out thinking there's a contradiction here, right? We can't yeah. be this great performer and do the deeper healing work, which often, well, certainly in my experience, has been very disruptive. You're trying to rebuild these narratives, but that requires you going into the darkness to kind of understand the narrative that exists right now. Um, but, but actually, if you take, going right back to the start of this podcast, right, if you take this definition of doing, you know, doing the best you, you can with what you've got at the moment, and you, you can apply that. So me doing the best with what I had in that moment was, well, I've got some money, there's a therapist available, you know, this is what I can do, right? To yeah. start to heal and look at this stuff, right? So it's just, it's, it's again, it's right, it's down to the definition of, and for me, performance in that moment was me, you know, taking hold of, taking responsibility for my own healing. And it sounds to me like the work you did with the therapist is, is giving yourself better resources. Mm. So what is it? So the, the moment you're in, the best you can. So what you need is, I need, I need, it's the resources and the like. So what I have, and you need more knowledge, more support, mm. more, more, more resources. As we say to help you then be able to be even better in a different context. So you, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think it's incredibly brave of you to to share that because I think the more people talk about the benefits of therapy, as you've just done, I think suddenly it's all removes any stigma that might be there for 
for for people that are reluctant to reach out for it. Well, thank you, and I, I think um, yeah, I really appreciate that feedback. But I also think it's part; it's something that's emerging right now. You know, I don't know if you caught these. It, was it Ali, the famous footballer, right? He's starting to talk about some of his yeah. early experiences, and uh, yeah, I think it feels like there's a shift. There's a sh- there's a shift in the conversation in terms of what we can talk about. Hope so. In the context of of, of performance, um, I know we haven't got long. We've got we've got we've got five minutes left. Um, but one one other highlight that I, I thought I'd pick up on, which I which I really liked, and this came from James Clear. I um, identity change is the north star of habit change. So we've talked about these non negotiable behaviors. You know, forming those into habits over time to get the consistency. But there's, it feels like there's a key piece of this, and that's this idea of identity, which gives context to that discipline and those behaviors. I wonder if you could talk a bit to that. Yeah, so there's two ways we make decisions. Psychologists have explained this to you, that when you make a decision, they, they often say there are two apparatus that you use to, to make a decision. So. If you're an economist, they think that everyone makes a decision based on cost versus benefit. So you weigh up a situation and you go, right, what is the cost of me doing this? But equally, what is the benefit that is going to come my way? So, so that's how it's traditionally been pursued, uh, been sort of seen in that coldly logical definition of the world. But there was a political scientist called James March who sadly has passed away in the last few years, but James Martin said, actually, we make decisions through identity. And when we make a decision through our identity, what he advocates is we ask ourselves three questions. The first question we ask is, what is this situation that I'm confronted with? The second one is, who am I? Who do I perceive myself to be? And then the third question is, what would somebody like me do in this situation? So in James March's teachings, what he says is, this helps us explain why you might have a multimillionaire choose to vote for a political party that is threatening to tax him at a higher rate. Because if your identity is, yeah, I'm a multimillionaire, but I'm also a caring member of a community, and I believe that community is really powerful, you have no problem in making that decision to go, yes, the... That is just who I am. I'm a caring member of a community. And this situation says that, so that what I would do is vote for the person that chooses to tax me higher. Whereas if you're a political economist, you'd go, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense because they believe that you would only vote for your own self-interest. So when we start to see our identity and the importance of it, we start to understand so many of our decisions. So again, if you're somebody that sees yourself and this is why the therapy word that we're describing or identifying that non-negotiable behaviors and working out when I've been successful in the past, what are the behaviors that have, that have been really important to me? And we can inculcate them into our, pers- into our everyday identity. We start to just behave in a way that where they almost become ingrained as habits. We do it because that's just who we are. We're not doing it because... So if you see yourself as somebody that, that I'm a fit, active, healthy person, you don't go to the gym and feel like you're doing it because I should do it. 
because the benefits of getting fit uh, outweigh the benefits of not doing it. You do it just because that's what I am. I'm a fit, healthy, active person. So going and exercising is just part of my identity. It's not something that I have to negotiate with myself and decide whether it's a cost versus benefit. I just do it because that's who I am. So I think the importance of starting to unpick and, and, and take the bits that we want to have as part of our identity then allow us to almost overcome ourselves to get out of our own way and just behave in a manner that enables us to achieve our own performance. Yeah, but it, I, I, that makes total sense. And it, <laughs> it explains why I can think in my own life where certain disciplines I've made a good start with and then they've just fallen off. And, and because my identity wasn't supporting it. so it's, and, and there's a sort of marriage between the two, isn't it? The more we engage in those behaviors, the easier it is to adopt this new, new identity. Uh, and, but the more we consciously work on having a new identity, the easier it is to adopt the behaviors, right? So I, I can Absolutely. see how you, uh, have, having this understanding of both is really important. And anyway, that really helped me in the book. So I was... I was oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned it now and, and you've written it in, in the book. <laughs> okay well my god i could speak to you i've got pages of notes here i could go on forever but i know you you are you know a man with time constraints so damien thank you so much for your time um well it's been a privilege work. thank you for asking me yeah thank you for the work you're doing with the podcast um yeah no i really appreciate it um yeah the work's definitely inspired me um and we're oh, in a sort of similar line of business so i'm pretty confident i'm going to be able to take this into into clients as well Oh, um, brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's a big part of it. This is about spreading the word. So mm. it's about sort of, you know, helping each other. That's part yeah. of being human. So uh, yeah. thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. No, thank you. And we'll put the, the link to the podcast that you do with, with Jake Humphrey, a uh, link to the book. Um, and I know you've got your, your, your own uh, website, um, uh, Liquid Thinker. So we, we'll, put, we'll put a link to that as well. Any, any, Anything else you'd want to shout out for people who've resonated with the message today and anywhere else you'd send them? Well, we have a new book coming out in December, so it's available to pre-order now. So, oh. so the title is a follow-up from the book you've been kind mm. of to mention. So what we felt is that book you read there tells you about how to, about oh. how, how to achieve high performance. Yep. The book that we've got coming out is called How to Change Your Life, and that's almost like the, the roadmap of how to now put it into practice. So right. that tells you all the things you need to do. This tells you about the route that you're likely to go on as you do it. So right. that's available. It comes out in uh, December. Brilliant. Okay. Well, uh, we'll put a link for that for people who want to, to pre-order that one. And, and the title of that one again? How to Change Your Life. And then How the subtitle is Lessons in Transformation from High Performance. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks once again. Thanks once again, uh, Damien. Yeah, it's been awesome, and I'll let you let you go. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's been a privilege. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.